Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Audrey Rinlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. Thanks so much for joining me today and thank you for sharing this out and doing reviews and letting friends and family know about the Mission Driven Mom podcast and its offerings. And we have loved having more of you join us in the mastermind group for the after the podcast discussion. If you have not done that yet, head on over to the Mission Driven Mom mastermind Facebook group and request to join. And wanted to also remind you or let you know if you didn't know already that the sale on our first MDM celebration has been extended through the end of August. So you have till August 31st to get that 30% off. It's only $54 for the whole day of training to become a more um, discerning mother, which of course we could all use some of that. We'll have a great time building community, meeting people that live near us, and then having an award ceremony that evening. I'm super excited for it. Today I'm going to talk to you about five principles that I live by. This list has actually kind of been tucked away in my notes on my phone for quite a long time. And I, you know, I, I asked myself the question a while ago, what would I say if I had to say there were just five kind of overarching principles that I felt like were making some of the biggest differences in my life and that I felt like other people should live by. Now, this isn't to say that there aren't other principles that perhaps are just as important as these. And I decided not to try to put them in a like a descending order of, you know, five, four, three, two, one kind of thing. These aren't necessarily more important than the others, although there is one, um, I'll tell you in a minute, that I consider, of course, the beginning place and the most important one. But this is just five of them. I'm just going to go through them in the order that I have them written here and share with you some thoughts around them. And you can think about what your five governing principles are. And I would love to hear about them in the mastermind group after this podcast. So the first one I want to talk about is the important principle of forgiving everyone. Now, there's a whole podcast on this, the principles of forgiveness and I'm going to refer you over to that one. I'll put a link on the page for you so you can easily find it. But a while ago, I did a podcast on the principles of forgiveness and laid out some of my experiences and some helps that, that some things, concepts, ideas, other principles that have helped me to be able to forgive. I have to tell you that I feel like this is the foundational principle of all relationships, including our relationship with ourself. It is absolutely vital to understand and to begin to master it. There's no better energy we could put into learning how to truly love than to really understanding and practicing forgiveness. Jesus tells us that um, forgiveness is a conditional principle that we will be forgiven as we forgive. So that right there is a pretty motivating idea around forgiveness. 
But as a principle of emotional and mental health, as a principle of relationships, as a principle of self-acceptance and self-worth, it is absolutely invaluable. And I say this especially to women and to mothers because we really are so great at beating ourselves up. And we're so great at saying things to ourselves that we would never say to another human being. You know, we can be pretty cruel to ourselves and very unforgiving. And I think it's wonderful that um, we are self-evaluating. I think it's wonderful that we can recognize that we've done something wrong. And I'll talk about the value of that in just a minute. But ultimately, we have to learn to let go of things, not in a throw my hands up in the air and I don't care, but in a, it's going to be okay. And there's a God out there to fix it all. And I don't have to be the one that fixes everything. So one of the resources that I always talk about with forgiveness is a book called Forgiveness is a Choice. I go into this in more detail in the podcast, but just as I'm talking about this principle, I want to mention a couple things from this book. The author talks about his own journey to studying forgiveness and using it as a resource. He talks about how he was um, he he was a psychiatrist and he began seeing the need for um, he said that people are caught in destructive patterns. He saw this over and over again. He says, I grew enormously, enormously dissatisfied with my own area of research, moral development. And um, those in university settings were asking questions about morals that were not exciting the general public as far as I could see. And we were not asking the kinds of questions that might change people's lives. And he got a lot of backlash for his research in forgiveness, but he came to see that it was so fundamental to any kind of moral framework that um, it was worth understanding better. And he had to learn to forgive the people in his own, um, his colleagues and other people who gave him a bad time about that and had to practice forgiveness with them. But he says that um, our research group has conducted scientific tests using forgiveness as a form of therapy and education. We have researched the world's greatest, great religious traditions, read works of philosophy, and held discussions with therapists and counselors. Our work is by no means completed, but after 15 years of research, I feel that we have found sufficient evidence of the power of forgiveness so that I can offer our knowledge to those who want to be free from the bondage of anger and resentment. And of course, if you've listened to or you want to go listen also to a podcast I did on principles of addiction recovery, this also ties into that because one of the five triggers is resentment and it nurtures addiction more than anything else. And so that's why I say it's a religious and moral principle, but it's also a mental and emotional health principle. Of course, we know that our emotions and our biology are very intimately tied to each other and influence each other a lot. And so it's really almost impossible for us to truly be happy and at peace with ourselves and with the world, unless we have the tools for forgiveness and we practice them regularly because, you know, we're all, we humans, we just go out there and hurt each other in all kinds of ways and often unwittingly, unknowingly. And, and I've, you've probably had the experiences I have plenty of times that I've had to forgive people that didn't even know they hurt me. <laughs> so he goes on to talk about a study that they did 
with taking women ages 24 to 54 who were incest survivors. And this experiment that they did broke them into two groups. One did traditional therapy, one did forgiveness therapy. And um, within a year's period of time, those that had the forgiveness therapy were able to forgive their, their per perpetrators and went on to see significant emotional and psychological and physical and mental growth because they had been so stuck. This resentment, although it was legitimate, uh, very deserved um, in terms of they had been very, very violated, that the forgiveness was necessary for them. You know, forgiveness is not about anybody else. It's about you. And in their ability to forgive their perpetrators through this therapy, they were able to overcome their anxiety, their depression, and their low self-esteem and were able to move forward in their lives because they were also stuck. So the first principle is forgiveness. I have learned that it brings happiness, it heals hearts, it heals relationships, it heals addiction. It brings people closer to God. He says 85% of the people that he's worked with have had to have a belief in God in order to forgive. Maybe it's higher than that. A few have been able to forgive without a belief in God, but that framework that there is a God, that ultimate redemption is available, that justice will be served to those who have wronged us, all aids in the ability to forgive. But grab that book, listen to the pod, those two podcasts, and, and work on your own ability to forgive. It's really, really powerful. The second principle I live by is something called empowering questions. And I want to actually read to you from the source that first taught this to me. This is Keith Cameron Smith in a little book called The Top 10 Distinctions Between Millionaires and the Middle Class. And he actually has a, this top 10 list and he counts down from 10 to one. And um, he says, millionaires ask themselves empowering questions, middle-class people ask themselves disempowering questions. But I do think um, he is a Christian man himself if not, he definitely teaches true principles. So he's using this in the context of becoming stronger financially, but it is a true life principle. And here's how he ties it back. And as he ties it into scripture, I just, my mind was blown when he first taught me this. On the surface, this distinction may seem unimportant. I assure you that it is a profound principle. When you develop the habit of asking yourself empowering questions, your life will take on new meaning and success is inevitable. This distinction reflects a universal principle that is summed up in the ancient scripture, ask and you shall receive. You will receive answers for whatever questions you ask, so you better ask empowering questions. And that idea really did literally change my life, that it's an eternal immutable principle that whatever questions we ask will be answered, especially when we ask them repeatedly because our brain always has to move towards something. We've known this from a scientific perspective from a long, for a long time, that you can't tell people, don't cross the street, don't trip, that your mind only knows how to visualize something positive. It only knows how to move towards something and not away from something. And because that principle is there, the more we ask certain questions, our mind will search for answers. And so that being the case, as we ask ourselves disempowering questions, we actually find the answers to those questions because our mind is going to search out answers. So he, he goes on, which question is more empowering? 
How can I double my income this year? Or how can I get enough money to pay the bills this month? Think about questions that expand your mind because you will see, receive answers to any questions you ask. He goes on to explain some differences. Um, what is life trying to teach me right now? Or why do bad things always happen to me? How can I develop a deeper relationship with my spouse? Or why is it so hard to get along with my spouse? I don't know about you. I've asked the question, you know, that here's another one. What would I enjoy doing to stay strong and healthy? Or why is it so hard to lose weight? If I ask myself the question, why don't my kids love me? Or why don't they serve me? Or why are they so disobedient? I'll just find answers to that question. But I will be problem focused rather than solution focused. Asking empowering questions puts us in a new frame of reference where we want to solve a problem. And so we ask questions that make us, that empower us, that make us feel more powerful, that lead us to solutions, not to more problems. He says um, that millionaires, and, and I know some millionaires that aren't masters at managing their emotions. So this is, this is a little bit not entirely the case with everyone, but those that man, they're masters at managing their emotions are masters at managing their emotions because they ask themselves, habitually ask themselves empowering questions. So here's a couple descriptors. Empowering questions ask what you can do and disempowering questions ask what you can't do. Empowering questions make you feel good. Disempowering questions make you feel bad. So he goes on to say, you can control the way you feel by asking yourself empowering questions. Now I demonstrated the power of this principle in a podcast uh, I did a few months ago called the three keys to clear thinking. So I'll link that one as well. And that is shown through the story of Immaculata Blagiza in um, her story about the Rwandan Holocaust. And, uh, she has this, these incredible experiences around empowering questions. So I won't get into a lot of details about that one, but I'll tell you, it really changed my life and I am not perfect at it, but I'm much better at checking myself and, and, and just having that frame of reference in there and being able to kind of check in with, okay, now am I just focused on the problem here? And do I really want to find a solution? And do I want to stay stuck in the mire? And do I really want to find a solution or not? So then I just ask all these, you know, I try to turn it around and find an empowering question. You know, things aren't going the way I want them to. Well, how can I make things go better? So um, that's, that's the second principle. The third principle is submission to all truth. And especially in the way of God, conscience, and principles, I talk about submission to, uh, in the mission-driven stories, that I tell in these podcasts, the, the obvious one that comes to mind is Shinichi Suzuki. You might want to listen to that podcast as he submits to conscience and it revolutionizes his life. Really, really powerful story. We find great people who submit to God and principles and conscience um, over and over and over again. There's a great quote by um, James Madison when he said that if you show me any of my opinions is contradicted by divine scripture, I will quit my opinion and submit to what scripture teaches because he was, he, he didn't think he was always right. He didn't think he had it all figured out. And so he was going to submit even his opinions to whatever was actually really true. So I want to dive into this just a, a tiny bit more and kind of analyze these words a little bit, because I think it helps us understand 
this principle of submission even better. So I'm going to give you some definitions around this word. Uh, and I think you'll see what I mean here. So the definition of submission is yield, resign, or surrender to the power, will, or authority of another. And um, it goes on to talk about yielding without murmuring, which reminded me of the definition of patience, this idea of waiting upon the Lord, because patience is enduring without murmuring. It's waiting long for justice. So submission has this element of giving up your will for something that's more powerful and um, of greater authority than you. And it's about doing it without complaining and trusting that the authority that you've given yourself over to is really that, that, that you're in good hands. And it is so important. I mean, I can't even tell you, we have so many young people in the West who submit themselves over to professors who do not have their best interests in mind and who are not teaching truth. And that submission of their will ends up making kind of a wreck of their, their reason and their faith. And so it's really so super important that we are truth seekers so that we can submit to what is actually really true. And that requires work. It requires mental and spiritual work. But of course, the payoff is phenomenal. I mean, do we want the payoff? Do we want to become the best that we can be? Do we want God working through us in life? Do we want the the benefits in, 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 in the life to come. So that's really so critical. And I, this is another thing I wanted to bring up in conjunction with this is, and that is the word mission. So we're the mission driven mom and we want to fulfill our mission and submission is to submit our will. Now listen to the definition of mission being sent by authority with certain powers for transacting business sent by an authority to perform a service. So we have to figure out who the ultimate authority in our lives is. Is it the principles? Is it our conscience? Is it God? Is it all of those things together? Is it the ultimate truth? I mean, plenty of great people have said that they were striving to submit their lives to truth. And just the attempt, the honest attempt was revolutionary for them. You know, one, one person, we were having a conversation, a board discussion this morning, and then we were talking about Anne Rand and how she was willing to submit to government and economics principles. She saw the power there. She escaped from communist Russia. She saw the revolutionizing power of government and economic principles, and she taught them with power and force all her life, but she wouldn't take the next step and submit to the idea that those principles came from somewhere higher that they came from God and that he had, there was more to the moral code than just the black and white of government and economic principles. And she wreaked havoc in her own life and marriage and in the lives of other people. And those, those young students who submitted themselves to her as their authority, who swallowed whole the doctrines that she taught could see the benefits societally with some of the economic principles, but they also saw their personal lives fall apart, their marriages and their, their um, obedience to their consciences in, a, in an effort to try to obey this authority they'd adopted without taking the time and putting in the effort to, to place their lives on a firmer foundation. And that was really 
really detrimental for them. Now, of course, the opposite of the truth is a lie. And I have mentioned um, Scott Peck. I've probably quoted some of these pages in past um, podcasts, but I'm going to quote them again in conjunction with this principle of submitting to God and to truth, because if the opposite of truth is a lie, what does it look like when we aren't submitting to truth? How would we go about doing that? And I love this because he uses the phrase, the poor in spirit. And, and, And in fact, I was just talking to someone today about this idea that You know, the Beatitudes, the very first Beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit because God can't do anything with us until we're humble. And that's why C.S. Lewis talks about pride as being the great sin because it says, pride says, I got this. I can do it by myself. I don't need outside input. I don't need God and his principles. I'm just going to figure this out on my own. And we just do all kinds of damage in our lives when we are full of pride in whatever area. Now, you can be proud from the top and you can also be proud from the bottom up. You can be jealous of the people who have the things that you don't have. And you can think that you're morally better than them because you don't have their money and you don't have their resources or whatever the case might be. Well, you haven't had their temptations either, so you don't know. Anyway, that's totally beside the point. But this is Pecky says... The poor in spirit do not commit evil. Evil is not committed by people who feel uncertain about their righteousness, who question their own motives, who worry about betraying themselves. The evil in this world is committed by the spiritual fat cats, by the Pharisees of our own day, the self-righteous who think they are without sin because they are unwilling to suffer the discomfort of significant self-examination. Unpleasant though it may be, the sense of personal sin is precisely that which keeps our sin from getting out of hand. And I love that. And it ties back into what I was saying about forgiveness and how we struggle to forgive ourselves. But just the fact that we're honest enough about the fact that we do have sin, that we do have something wrong with us, should be an indicator to us that we aren't as bad off as we think we are and that we're redeemable and that we can overcome and that God will help us within that process. And it shows us that we aren't as evil as we might think we are and things aren't as bad as they might be. They, they could be because at least we're admitting that there is a problem and we're trying to look for some answers to that problem. Um, he goes on to say um, that... In summary, to a greater or lesser degree, all mentally healthy individuals submit themselves to the demands of their own conscience. Not so the evil, however. In the conflict between their guilt and their will, it is the guilt that must go and the will that must win. He says they're very strong-willed individuals. He says this evolution leaves humans in the position of being either totally willful or having to seek new ways of self-control through submission to higher principles. And that's kind of almost like a good guy, bad guy type way of looking at things. If you can see your humanity, if you can admit your fault, not with the intention of scapegoating it and finding a way of proving that you aren't truly responsible for what went wrong, but in a way of admitting, making restitution, and working to overcome, then you know you're on the right path and you know that things can work out for the best. So submitting to truth, recognizing that submission to authority, you can't be sent out on a mission 
unless you have submitted to an authority higher than yourself that has greater power than you have so that that authority can then invest you with the power to do work in their name. It happens in a micro level all the time in, in businesses and in other realms. Children do this with parents, do errands for their parents in the name of their parents with their parents' money and authority. And so we can do this for God. We can be on a mission, but in order to be on a mission, we have to first submit and get ourselves, you know, attempt as, as Scott Peck says, to be, to obtain greater self mastery in obedience to higher principles. So the fourth principle that I strive to live by, I, I, is diligence, um, to, to be diligent in all my activities to attempt to be better and live principles. Now, these three other principles that I've mentioned to be forgiving, to ask empowering questions and to submit to God aren't going to work. In addition to any other principle you can think of right now, it's, it's not going to work if I only do it for a while and then I quit. I mean, every single diet in the history of the world is indicative of that behavior. If I don't change the way I live my life, if I don't do it forever, then it's going to drop off and I'm going to put the weight back on or whatever it might be. Or if I do it and then I don't do it and I do it and then I don't do it. I am trying to become something, right? Like I'm trying to become better than I used to be. And I can't do it if I don't keep at it. Now, one of the ways that we talk about this principle sometimes is that we'll say that you have to be consistent. And this is something that, um, that I don't have it mentioned. Uh, maybe I've mentioned it in the past, but another way of looking at principles is, is that there's universal principles and then there's specific principles. So, um, it's, it's like a first principle. If you want to think about it that way, diligence applies to all other principles. We must be diligent in the principle, if that makes sense. So one of the things that people often say is that you've got to be consistent. You got to stick with it, right? Well, I looked up those definitions and consistent means fixed, permanent, and done in the same way over time, unchanging. So that's really good that you don't change. You just keep doing it, doing it, and doing it. But diligence has this nuanced concept and, and, and idea about it that makes it richer and even better than consistency. Diligence is consistency plus. So diligent is constant in effort, attentive, prosecuted with care, industrious and conscientious. So it's the element of being awake, of thinking about what I'm doing, of striving to make improvements as I go. So I don't just say, okay, well, it's this, so I'm just going to do it forever. I take stock regularly. I ask myself if it's still working. I see if I need to make improvements or changes or tweaks to the things that I'm trying to do. I don't give up. I'm consistent. It also has the diligence also has this aspect about it that you're not running faster than you have strength, but that you're putting in your very best effort that you're conscientious, that you're asking yourself, do I have greater capacity? Could I do more than I'm doing? Do I need to slow down for a time and put effort other places? And so your overall level of diligence, you know, it's about intention that we talked about last podcast, that the intention is so much a part of having success at anything. And so if, if you, um, 
If you are diligent in all areas of your life, then your attention might change. You might have more attention in one area at one period of your life. It, it doesn't negate the idea that there are seasons in life, but it does ensure that those things that are most important happen over and over and over again. And that as we improve as individuals and as families, that our rituals improve as well. You know, it's like, the, 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 the thing that always sticks in my mind with diligence is Father Tenboom walking down the stairs at 810 every single morning, year in and year out and decade in and decade out, and walking downstairs and gathering everyone in the house, including his employees, anyone that might be visiting, and reading at least a chapter of scripture, discussing it and having prayer. That is diligence. And as he became wiser and smarter, he had more wisdom to, to share. And as the family grew and became more spiritually mature, they had more to share. And so the richness of that experience um, evolved over time and they became better and better through their diligent efforts. The essence of, of greatness is diligence. Um, the greats in any endeavor, if you look at their lives, you see this diligence. They just, they're relentless. They're just, you find them five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, and they're just doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it. The influence for good or ill, whether or not that diligence turns into positive societal impact is about the submission. Because you can be diligent at the wrong things, right? So if you're submitting to truth and you're diligent in that submission, you're going to continue to become better. And that diligence is going to take on a, a, a richness over time as you grow. The last principle that I want to talk about today is to have a vision. Isaiah said, where there is no vision, the people perish. And I have mentioned this one in previous podcasts as well, mentioned it briefly last podcast in intention. And um, when I talked about also principles stink that having vision is so key to being able to accomplish really anything worthwhile. It is the overarching way in which we live intentionally, um, in which we move towards something and we have to have a vision. It's like the quote that I gave last time about that morality is based upon a vision of greatness. That's what Whitehead said. And so I fill my life with the stories and the lives of great people. I watch them, you know, we're currently starting, we're kicking off our year of American history studies by watching John Adams and talking that through. I just surround myself with a vision of greatness and it helps me maintain a vision of greatness for myself and for my family. It keeps me always striving. I never arrive because these people are so eminently better than me, but I want to be like them. I, um, there are many, many nights for a long time. There wasn't any night and it's not as frequent as it used to be, but many, many nights when I go to bed and I crawl in the covers in my warm, comfortable room and I think of Corey Ten Boom cramped in a concentration camp with no covering, um, with, with fleas and bud, bed, bug, bed bugs everywhere, um, women side by side with her. And I think of the price that she paid for the truth that she had. And that vision of her and the sacrifices that she made makes getting up early in the morning or working harder at MDM or putting work aside to spend more time with my children or whatever it is that I need to do to be the 10 booms. 
I just keep that vision of greatness right at the forefront of my mind and strive like crazy to be like them. And I couldn't do what I do and I wouldn't have come as far as I've come. And everyone's on their own path. God would very much like us to quit looking sideways and to start looking up. He would very much like us to focus in on our own path. And if we want to make any kind of comparisons to look behind us and see how far we've come. And and so this isn't about anybody reaching any particular point. It's just about being better than we were. And it's about holding that vision of greatness. So we have our own vision of who we want to become. I have a vision board. I have stuff up there right now um, that helps me to continue to strive and remember why I'm doing this and the vision that God's given me of where we're headed as a family and where we're headed in MDM. Um, you know, years ago when I... Um, started being asked to speak in, in kind of government and economic circles. I, 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 I was speaking at rallies and on the radio and all this kind of thing as part of the Tea Party movement. And, and they used to call me the Constitution Lady. And, and I, I, would, I would go up there on stage or whatever, and I would think, I'm not the Constitution Lady. This isn't where I plan to land. And, um, and I did good things. It's not as if I didn't do good things. I spoke the truth that I knew. I taught the principles that I understood. And, and good things happened. We formed the Ten Boom Institute and I book blogged. But you know, I didn't have a vision for what we were trying to accomplish. I, I threw together some classes and taught them online. And I learned a lot from those experiences. But I didn't have a vision of where we were headed. So when it was time to build MDM, I didn't have a foundation laid. I had my own experiences that I'd learned from, but because I had kind of gone into all of that, just letting other people be the guide and just kind of responding to their requests rather than setting out purposefully with my own vision, I didn't have a foundation to build on. So we kind of just had to start from scratch and, and that's okay, but it would have been better if I had had a clearer vision and if I had used that vision, if I had paid a bigger price to get clear with God and had used that to make better choices about where I was going to put my energy. There's a visual in the book Essentialism where there's a circle. And if you can imagine this circle and around it are a bunch of short little arrows. And the circle is you and the arrows are the energy you expend in any given day or over time. And the arrows go, they emanate from your circle in every direction. And they're all short and heading out from you in every direction. And then if you imagine that same circle and there's all of the exact same, you know, if you were to take all those little arrows and add them together, the length that they are and put them and stack them all in a row and put them on top of that circle, they would reach really far out in one direction. And that's the visual that Greg McEwen gives us in Essentialism for helping us to understand that we need to have a clearer vision of where we're headed if we're really going to get there. And that this overarching principle helps us to eliminate any miscellaneous activity and to spend exactly the same amount of energy. And that's what that visual means. I'm spending exactly the same amount of energy, but it's all headed in the same direction. It's kind of like the person who plays around with their moral code, you know, on and on and on, and they don't really know what they stand for and they don't really know what they believe in, or they say they believe things, but they don't really dig in and come to understand their own belief system and moral code so that they can stand solidly there and teach others truth. So 
he, I'm just going to quote him as we finish up here. He says some really fantastic things. He says, less is better. The way of the essentialist is the relentless pursuit of less but better. It doesn't mean occasionally giving a nod to the principle. It means pursuing it in a disciplined way. There are far more activities and opportunities in the world than we have time and resources to invest in. And although many of them may be good or even very good, the fact is that most are trivial and few are vital. The way of the essentialist involves learning to tell the difference, learning to filter through all those options and selecting only those that are truly essential. Essentialism is not about how to get more things done. It's about how to get the right things done. It doesn't mean just doing less for the sake of doing less either. It is about making the wisest possible investment of your time and energy in order to operate at our highest point of contribution by doing only what is essential. And he challenges us with this question, which I will leave you with. Is this the very most important thing I should be doing with my time and my resources right now? Ponder that question. Think about how you can have a clearer vision for where you're heading in your life and what foundation that you're building. Live those four foundational laws of life mission. Get them really, really solid. Don't short circuit the system. Make sure that you have a solid handle on those so that you can continue to build a foundation in your home and hold a vision of where your family is headed. And in the meantime, bring as many people with you as you possibly can. Thanks so much for joining me today. If you don't have your free copy of the ebook, The Mission Driven Life, please head over to themissiondrivenmom.com where you can get that for free. Thanks for joining me and I'll see you next time.